0: Welcome to the Clubhouse Litterbugs! I am back by popular dementia, and you're just in time for another installment of the Classic English Literature Podcast, the show that gives rhyme its reason. Thank you so much for stopping by, and really, I hope you enjoy your visit. Today's show takes a look at a couple of Shakespeare's famous comedies, As You Like It and Much Ado About Nothing both written probably in 1599, that Annus Mirabilis for Shakespeare, which saw him composing not only these comedies, but Henry V, which we looked at last time, Julius Caesar, which we will look at next time, and he even got a draft of Hamlet done. Now that's a full work in year, lad. For this little chat, I'd like to focus on the main female characters in the plays, Rosalind in As You Like It and Beatrice in Much Ado. Not only because these women are interesting compliments for one another, but also because they are among the strongest and most intelligent women ever to spring, Venus like, fully formed from the balding head of Billy the Bard. Pardon me. Sorry for interrupting.
1: Zeus here. King of the Olympian Gods. The illusion you just heard is quite inaccurate. Venus, or Aphrodite more accurately, did not spring fully formed from my head. That, of course, was Athena. Fully armed, too, by the by. I still get a blinding migraine whenever it rains. Now, I see that this episode has been live for well over a month. I'm only just hearing about it now because, well... I've been rather busy. These ungrateful children have been running me ragged. Oh, no you don't, young lady. You're not going out dressed like that, Aphrodite. Go upstairs and change. Hephaestus can wait. Run something respectable. See what I mean? Where was I? Oh, yes. This episode has been live for a month, and none of you listeners have said anything about this foolish era. As far as I can see, that can mean only two things. One, you noticed the mistake but were too generous to call attention to it. If so, your forbearance is to be commended. Two, you did not notice that it was a mistake and have thus revealed your ignorance. You must do better. This podcaster records these episodes when he is entirely sober, so cannot be held completely accountable for his babblings. No, Aphrodite, I said no. Dionysus, put that bottle down. It's a de la Romani Conte Grand Cru 1945. Damn kids!
0: So, before we celebrate this sisterhood of wit and while, know that you can reach me at ClassicEnglishLiterature at gmail.com that's Classic English Literature, that's all one word, gmail.com. If you're a fan of the social medias, you can search Classic English Literature Podcast on any one of them and treat yourself to cheeky little videos and podcast announcements. And of course, you can always make a financial contribution by clicking the Support the Show button. Which leads me to a great big thank you to Terry V., our most recent donor. Terry, your gift will help me keep the lights on and the mic hot. Not to mention, it does my soul good to know that people are digging the podcast. Thank you so very, very much, Terry. Back in episode 47, the one about a Midsummer Night's Dream, I made bold with some references to Shakespeare having invented the romantic comedy, the rom-com. Now, of course, he didn't literally. But his comedies do supply many of the tropes and conventions that the following centuries have adopted, adapted, and embroidered. Never, shall I say, improved. In today's plays, especially Much Ado, Shakespeare gives us the archetype for all those for all those comic leads that Katherine Hepburn played in the 1930s and 40s the you know the sophisticated witty prickly but ultimately tender romantic object think of films like Bringing Up Baby or Holiday or Woman of the Year and maybe the best uh, best of them Adam's Rib Or you could think about Rosalind Russell playing Hildy Johnson in Billy Wilder's His Girl Friday, great character. And geez, you know, we can even work our way backwards a bit and we can see Jane Austen's women, probably especially Elizabeth Bennet, as indebted to the characters Shakespeare created in Beatrice and Rosalind. But while we may think of such characters as, you know, rom-com or screwball comedy staples, Shakespeare's iterations are deeply complex and display an ambivalent attitude toward the gender conventions, not only of early modern Europe, really, but of Western society even today. We're familiar, I imagine, with the pre modern understanding of the ideal female you know, submissive, deferential, dependent, of low wisdom and intelligence, emotional, capricious, and irrational hardly flattering. And while we publicly deplore such representations today, I think we still recognize their salience, especially in the realm of comedy. So many jokes are predicated upon the audience understanding particular assumptions about gender or race or religion or whatever. And generally, such stereotypes are invoked today only to be subverted. And that is what, on the whole, the characters of Beatrice and Rosalind do in these plays. They subvert anti-female assumptions while asserting their own agency. Sort of. You can start a bar fight by making any statement about Shakespeare's portrayal of women. Well, I mean, it does depend on the kind of bar you go to and on the patron's commitment to feminist analyses of Elizabethan drama. But if you are in such a bar, just watch what you say, because you could be looking at some Star Wars cantina-level aggression. Now some, such as me, full disclosure, see Shakespeare's female characters as endlessly rich and complex, without ignoring the fact that they often reveal certain prejudices of the time. Of course, one can quantitatively point out that Bill just doesn't give his women enough stage time, that men do most of the talking, and yeah, that's really true. His largest male role, Hamlet, has some 1,500 lines, while his largest female role has less than half of that, at 721. Now that role belongs to Rosalind. Here's the part where I'd usually give a brief summary of As You Like It's plot. Columbia University professor James Shapiro calls it a, quote, relatively plotless drama. And in a lecture by Oxford University's Emma Smith, she asks, quote, what happens in As You Like It? And the answer she initially offers is, quote, not much. But I think that too quick and dirty, don't you? That's more fast and filthy. Here is something of the plot to this rather plotless play that nonetheless, as Shapiro himself says, has, quote, a great deal going on, and on many levels. Duke Frederick has banished his brother, Duke Senior, who lives in his exiled court in the Forest of Arden. Senior's daughter, Rosalind, still lives at Frederick's court with Celia, her great friend and cousin. Now One day, there's a wrestling match, and Rosalind falls for the victor, Orlando. After he maneuvers a splatle and a suplex, then she misses a crossface, he gives her a leg sweep, and she gets pinned. No, I mean, she falls in love with him. Duke Frederick doesn't want Orlando around, nor Rosalind for that matter. So the latter runs into the forest, searching for her love. And what better way to seduce a wrestler than with a bit of cross-dressing? Rosalind decides she must disguise herself as a young man called Ganymede to protect herself from the predations of unsavory men. Celia comes as a shepherdess called Aliena. I get it? Aliena. Aliena. Like, outsider? Uh-huh. So now we're getting some serious pastoral vibes. And, like much of the pastoral literature we've already discussed, that of Sir Philip Sidney in episode 35 and Edmund Spencer in 37, the Eclogues of episodes 40 and 41, you know, like those, nothing much happens here. We're treated to a surfeit of apparently random encounters in the forest of Arden, and there's a lot of talk about wanting things to happen, a lot of preparatory fretting about impending or imminent happenings. But that's really it. Yes, Orlando vandalizes the forest with some pretty goopy love poetry for Rosalind. There's a subplot involving real shepherd and shepherdess, Silvius and Phoebe which are stock pastoral names. Duke Senior's courtier, Jake Wees, offers some melancholy observations about the vanity of vanities. Side note, including the brilliant, but uh, admittedly rather dramatically decelerating Seven Ages of Man speech. You know it, right? All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances and one man in his time plays many parts, and so on and so on. The god Hymen emcees a quadruple wedding at the end of the play, just before a startlingly blunt use of deus ex machina. Uh, So blunt, in fact, that I'm convinced Billy the Bard's taking the piss here. Even a wrestling bout with a lioness fails to really charge the story up. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying the play is boring or that it's a failure. Heaven forfend. This is Shakespeare. All I'm saying is that the plot is not really why we're here. We're watching a pastoral poem play out before us. And if I'm honest, like most pastoral poems, it's the female character who's really the most fascinating. And that the female character here spends most of her time as a male character. Ganymede, remember, named for Zeus's mythical cupbearer and catamite, this affords some interesting opportunities for exploring gender. Now let's get the obvious out of the way first. Yes, the comic possibilities abound. Drag comedy has a long history in Anglophone theater. Um, think only of Monty Python's Pepperpot characters or Barry Humphrey's Dame Edna, that kind. We do get the added layer of irony here when we recall that in Elizabethan theater, all the female roles were performed by young men or boys. Though, contrary to popular understanding, this was a matter of professional convention and not law. It wasn't illegal for women to be on the stage, it simply wasn't done. Anyway, In the cross-dressing trope, we have a male actor impersonating a female character impersonating a male character. Comedy gold. But here we get Rosalind seducing Orlando as a man once again pretending to be a woman. Ganymede says he can soothe Orlando's longing if Orlando will think of Ganymede as Rosalind. Quote, I would cure you if you would but call me Rosalind and come every day to my coat and woo me. Now, you don't have to be Freud to get the subtext here, yeah? And while Shakespeare had the plausible deniability of music-hall hijinks, Orlando seems willing to do some man-to-man wooing. He's not shocked or stunned at the idea, and really would pretend-I'm-a-girl work anyway. As in Richard Barnfield's pastoral poem, The Affectionate Shepherd, see episode 41, I think we really get an early portrayal of queer love here, or attraction at any rate. Rosalind's concern for the realities or constructions of gender begin very early in the play. One lazy day, she speaks with Cousin Celia, What shall be our sport then? Celia replies, Let us sit and mock the good housewife Fortune from her wheel, that her gifts may henceforth be bestowed equally. Rosalind says, I would we could do so, for her benefits are mightily misplaced, and the bountiful blind woman doth most mistake in her gifts to women. Celia says, 'tis true, for those that she makes fair she scarce makes honest, and those that she makes honest she makes very ill favoredly. Rosalind contradicts, nay, now thou goest from fortune's office to nature's. Fortune reigns in gifts of the world, not in the lineaments of nature. Rosalind chides fortune for the perceived inferiority of women. Uh, Indeed, Cecilia herself reduces femaleness to the poles of beauty and virtue. But Rosalind asserts that nature would not have had it so. Yet after her banishment, she does lament, I could find in my heart to disgrace my man's apparel and to cry like a woman, but I must comfort the weaker vessel as doublet and hose ought to show itself courageous to petticoat. It's a tacit affirmation of manly fortitude over womanly weeping. But I think we should note that Rosalind is using some clothing metonyms here to highlight the the rather superficial and concealing nature of such conventions. Now, here's another interesting scene. This one, it feels like a a telescoped line from a sonnet. Now, I found a 1964 performance by the Shakespeare Recording Company, and I think I'm going to use that because my reading back and forth a couple of parts is a bit awkward. So, here we are. 1964, this is Vanessa... Redgrave, and Keith Mitchell, I believe, as Orlando and Rosalind. Rosalind slash Ganymede asks Orlando,
2: Now, tell me how long you would have her after you have possessed her?
0: Forever and a day.
2: Say, a day without the ever. No, no, Orlando. Men are April when they woo, December when they wed. Maids are may when they are maids But the sky changes when they are wives I will be more jealous of thee than a barbary cock over his head. More clamorous than a parrot against rain. More newfangled than an ape. More giddy in my desires than a monkey. I will weep for nothing like Diane in the fountain. And I will do that when Art disposed to be merry. I will laugh like a hyen, And that when Art inclined to sleep.
1: But will my Rosalind do so? By
2: my life she'll do as I do.
1: Oh, but she is wise.
2: Or else she could not have the wit to do this. The wiser, the waywarder. Make the doors upon a woman's wit Twill out of the casement. Shut that, twill out of the keyhole. Stop that, twill fly with the smoke Out at the chimney.
0: Note Rosalind's wisdom Or maturity or realism here. She sounds to me so much like The beloved in Spencer's Amoretti You know, taming the wild whirlwind fantasy Of her lover, bringing it down to nature After the first flush of fortune but all the while madly in love herself. You know, we relish the irony of, quote, she will do as I do. And Rosalind comments that a wise woman is wayward. Of course, of course. Here's one dressed as a man explaining the real world of love to a daft lover in the forest. She does it again when in conversation with Oliver, Orlando's prickly brother, She believes that Orlando has lost his battle with the lioness and faints away.
1: Oh now, Ganymede, sweet Ganymede. Then he will swoon when they do look on blood.
2: There is more in it. Cousin Ganymede.
1: Look, he recovers.
2: I would I were at home. We'll lead you thither. I pray you you will take him by the arm.
1: Be of good cheer, youth. You a man, you lack a man's heart.
2: I do, sir. I confess it. Ah, ha, ha, uh, sirrah. A body would think this was well counterfeited. I pray you, tell your brother how well I counterfeited. Oh, hey-ho.
0: This was not
1: counterfeit. There is too great testimony in your complexion that it was a passion of earnest.
2: Counterfeit, I assure you. Well,
0: then, take a good heart and counterfeit to be a man.
2: So I do, but if faith, I should have been a woman by right.
0: Oh, so many levels here, huh? Wheels within wheels. The key irony here, though, is the counterfeiting toward authenticity. And it's interesting that Rosalind says, quote, a body would think this was well counterfeited rather than, you know, someone would think or didn't you think? There's an emphasis here on the physical, on the corporeal, right? The gendered body in a way. Men don't faint. Men don't show fear or worry, Rosalind keeps arguing for these stereotypes in her portrayal of a man, while Oliver presses her to tell the truth about the swoon. But, rightfully, by right, Rosalind should be allowed to be authentically herself. Now, while Rosalind is certainly a courtly woman, in the forest she becomes more natural, I guess, ironically at first, through the portrayal of male fortune, but acquiesces to the established order of things as the court is restored. To both the duke, her father, and Orlando, her husband, she repeats, "'To you I give myself, for I am yours.'" "'To you I give myself, for I am yours.'" Now, do we see this as an act of agency, her free choice of love, both filial and erotic? Or is it mere accommodation? I don't know, but I like her jaunty epilogue in which she continues to tease the assumptions about sex and gender and agency. That sense of a... Gendered authenticity provides a nice pivot to the other star of today's show, Beatrice from Much Ado About Nothing. Now, while Rosalind's milieu becomes the forest, with connotations of natural liberty and perhaps even wildness, Beatrice's milieu is the Italian villa, a place of cultivation, an idealized simulacrum of ordered Arcadia. First, a quick and dirty. Returning from the wars, Count Claudio stops at a villa and falls in love with Hero, the daughter of his host, Leonardo. Claudia's friend, Benedict, who has sworn never to marry, accompanies him, and eventually he and Hero's cousin, Beatrice, who has similarly sworn, are tricked into believing that the other is in love with them villain, Don John, deceives Claudio, who then believes Hero has had sex in a window, which is, of course, a precarious undertaking. Now what's a girl to do but swoon at such calumny? Everyone believes she is dead, but she's not, don't worry. Claudio is racked with guilt, as well he should be, shallow pup, and for his penance must agree to marry someone else mysterious bride enters veiled, and who does she turn out to be? If you said hero, give yourself a cookie. Benedict wins Beatrice's love for defending hero's honor, and the two couples unite in eternal nuptial bliss. Ends just like a comedy should. Marriage is all around, defeated villains, stability restored. Now, from that quick plot sketch... It seems that the Claudio hero couple is the main event with Beatrice and Benedict fighting on the undercard, but of course, Claudio and Hero are really two-dimensional characters, they're kind of flat, they're props for a certain conception of gender and marriage. Claudio is kind of vapid, really, a cartoon romantic hero and Hero is the very card and calendar of the Elizabethan good girl, all timid virtue and sighing. Beatrice comments, quote, Yes, Faith, it is my cousin's duty to make curtsy and say, Father, as it please you. But yet for all that cousin, let him be a handsome fellow or else make another curtsy and say, Father, as it please me as might be surmised by Beatrice's urging hero to assert her own desires, the down-ticket couple is the more interesting. In fact, the play was often presented as Beatrice and Benedict, as that was the attraction for audiences. In the run-up to Hero's defamation, they engage in a kind of verbal sparring that would inspire Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert in It Happened One Night. A skirmish of wit, as Uncle Leonardo calls it. Here is one of their early sparrings from a 1960 production of the Dublin Gate Theatre.
2: I wonder that you will still be talking, Signor Benedict. Nobody marks you.
0: What, my dear Lady Disdain? Are you yet living?
2: Is it possible Disdain should die while she hath such meat food to feed it as Signor Benedict? (laughs) Courtesy itself must convert to Disdain if you come in her presence. Then is courtesy a turncoat? But it is certain I am loved of all ladies, only you accept it. And I would I could find in my heart that I had not a hard heart, for truly I love none. A dear happiness to women. They would else have been troubled with a pernicious suitor. I thank God and my cold blood I am of your humour for that. I had rather hear my dog bark at a crow than a man swear he loves me. God keep your ladyship still in that mind, so some gentleman or other shall scape a predestinate scratched Scratching could not make it worse, and twere such a face as yours were. Well, you are a rare parrot, teacher. A bird of my tongue is better than a beast of yours. I would my horse had the speed of your tongue and so good a continuer, but keep your way in God's name I have done.
0: You always end with a jade's trick. I know your role. By my count, there are about a dozen and a half examples of classical rhetorical devices in this exchange. A lot of obvious things, perhaps, like the metaphor, courtesy is a turncoat, or the the sarcasm of dear happiness to women. But there are subtler and more elegant strategies at work here, too. For instance, Beatrice's antithetical statement, a bird of my tongue is better than a beast of yours, contrasts the qualities of her own verbal skills with the perceived lack of eloquence in Benedict. And Beatrice's exclamation, I wonder that you will still be talking, utilizes litotes, a form of understatement, to express her surprise or annoyance at Benedict's continuous blather. What I'm trying to point out here is the cultivated nature of Beatrice's wit and intelligence, the sense that it has been consciously nurtured and developed, in a subtle contrast to Rosalind's more merry and spontaneous-seeming wit. Now, this is not to say that Beatrice is not, you know, naturally witty or intelligent, but rather that she has disciplined her mental and verbal acuity. And she is a bit precious about it, too, we gotta say. Nothing Benedict says to her needles her as much as his insinuation that she gets her lines from a joke book, quote, "...and that I had my good wit out of the hundred merry tales." Well, this was Signor Benedict that said so. Her selfhood and agency are so circumscribed in this world, her woman's body potential chattel, that she guards the sanctity of her mind, refusing to submit intellectually. She says, Would it not grieve a woman to be overmastered with a piece of valiant dust, to make an account of her life to a clod of wayward marl? She, of course, here alludes to the creation of man from the book of Genesis. Quote, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. But when she compounds the dust reference using the word marl, which is a mixture of lime and clay that they used to use for fertilizer, I think she hints at her anxieties posed by such overmastery. Like, think perhaps of bird lime, that sticky substance used to trap birds. And so, as Benedict says, quote, she speaks poignards and every word stabs. Unlike Rosalind, Beatrice's wit is a weapon, but one more defensive than offensive, I think. I mean, not literally, yes, sometimes Beatrice does start the fight, but there feels like a vulnerability which necessitates preemptive strikes. For instance, her first line in the play, I pray you, is Signor Montanto returned from the wars or no? Asks for Benedict while simultaneously scorning him. And since Montanto refers to an upward thrust in fencing, being wary of the potential for sexual or emotional threat. Remember her last line in the longer exchange above? She tells him, I know you of old. In a conversation with the prince, she explains how she lost Benedict's heart, Quote, Indeed, my lord, he lent it me a while, and I gave him use for it, a double heart for his single one. Mary once before he wanted of me with false dice. Seems that these two did have a romantic, perhaps sexual, relationship at some time in the past. And that it ended so traumatically that both have sworn to celibacy, and done so in language loaded with misogyny and, albeit to a less troubling extent, misandry, because of the vulnerability. Since we often take the play at its word that this is all much ado about nothing, a bit of frivolous entertainment, it's easy to overlook the deeply troubling problem of female shaming and disgrace. The much commented upon pun of the title, nothing being Elizabethan slang for the vulva and less frequently the penis, the play is a big kerfuffle about sex. But not in the way of those screwball comedy films I keep insisting on referencing. Film critic Andrew Sarris called the screwball comedy, a sex comedy without the sex. And if we accept that notion, my analogy breaks down. Because while we don't see any actual copulation on stage, depending on how one presents Margaret in the window with Barraccio, the social ramifications of the sexual act are absolutely what the hero-Claudio plot is about, and it's where the Beatrice Benedict subplot fully intersects. Claudio's public denunciation of hero horrifies with its bile, and absolutely halts the action of a comedy. He says, There, Leonardo, take her back again. Give not this rotten orange to your friend. She's but the sign and semblance of her honor. Behold how like a maid she blushes here. Oh, what authority and show of truth can cunning sin cover itself withal? Comes not that blood as modest evidence to witness simple virtue? Would you not swear... All you that see her, that she were a maid by these exterior shows. But she is none. She knows the heat of a luxurious bed. Her blush is guiltiness, not modesty. The rest of the scene contains similar calumny, all based upon the generally accepted notion of female wantonness and infidelity, covered over with deceptive appearances. Note Claudio's use of the words sign, semblance, exterior, shows. The two false comparisons to a maid. All hero can do is swoon. The female is powerless to defend her honor. And that word, Falstaff's mere scutcheon, is used throughout the play as the highest of male virtues. But it's only used once to refer to hero's destruction. And even then... And the speech is Leonardo's, by the way, it is used in the conditional, if Claudio and Don John have wronged her honor, and almost as an afterthought. Hero's father says that he will, quote, tear her if what they charge is true. It seems to me, then, that masculine honor is quite a fragile thing, and in this story, is predicated upon a female honor presupposed to be all but non-existent. It's also probably worth noting the numerous examples of male inconstancy and infidelity referenced throughout the play, but which are invisible to the male characters as such, a version of that double standard which sees the oversexed man as heroic, but the oversexed woman as sluttish. And surely the slut has no honor to defend. So when Beatrice demands that Benedict prove his love by avenging Hero, she says coldly, Kill Claudio. She gives vent to an understandable wrath, while seemingly endorsing the very social conventions that have condemned her cousin. Here are two key speeches the first in response to Benedict, asking whether Claudio is really Beatrice's enemy. Quote, is he not approved in the height of villain that hath slandered, scorned, dishonored my kinswoman? Oh, that I were a man! What, bear her in hand until they come to take hands, and then with public accusation, uncovered slander, unmitigated rancor? Oh, God, that I were a man! I would eat his heart in the marketplace! She implies here that honorable vengeance is denied the woman for her natural weakness and her inconstancy, despite the fact that Claudio's accusations would demand satisfaction were a man's honor impugned. Eating his heart in the marketplace? That's just badass. Here's the other speech. Princes and counties. Surely a princely testimony, a goodly count. Count Comfect, a sweet gallant, surely. Oh, that I were a man for his sake, or that I had any friend who would be a man for my sake. But manhood is melted into curtsies, valor into compliment, and men are only turned into tongue, and trim ones, too. He is now as valiant as Hercules that only tells a lie and swears it. I cannot be a man with wishing, Therefore, I will die a woman with grieving. In her rage, Beatrice's verbal dexterity has not abandoned her. The rhetorical flourishes which begin this speech soon shift into a more temperate condemnation of contemporary manhood. Of the kind, actually, we saw disparaged by Richard III and also in the Henry plays. Masculinity is now a pose, an appearance, a role. What Rosalind pointed out in a lighter way, it has abandoned its force and become merely courtly, a tissue of lies. It's this that discharges any claims of hypocrisy on Beatrice's part. When she rages, oh, that I were a man, again and again, we're not supposed to understand that she endorses traditional masculine privilege generally. Rather that she laments her own powerlessness, resents the double standard, and finally recognizes it as a fiction, albeit a powerful one that condemns women to death through ignominy and grief. There's a temptation, especially among fans of Shakespeare, like myself sometimes, to find in him some early avatar of our own values and beliefs. We may want to see Shakespeare's two most intelligent and perceptive women as evidence of his proto-feminism, his solution to the battle of the sexes. But we must admit, I think, that while the generic demands of comedy necessitate marriage— the prospects for long-term success in the marriages of Rosalind and Orlando and Beatrice and Benedict are not self-evident. Yes, the plays have happy endings. All is well. But is Orlando too callow for Rosalind's energy, her wit? Is Beatrice too... Now, jaded seems like an exaggeration, but is she is she really going to subordinate herself to a man for the rest of her life? Weddings are the ends of comedies, but these women are too fully human to recede into happily-ever-after comic tropes. Capacious as his mind was, and intimate as his understanding of human nature is, we should never seek for answers in Shakespeare. He defies such reductionism. His work asks questions— and presents human responses to them without the need to settle on any single position. He possesses, as John Keats noted in 1817, negative capability, that is, when a man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. Beatrice and Rosalind dwell in the midst of competing definitions and expectations of women, natural and civil, without being reduced to a type or an exemplar. In the all-too-binary, oppositional, either-or thinking that undergirds much commentary and critique, his characters are never one or the other. They are always both, and usually, much in between as well. And that, to me, is a far more profound statement on gender, culture, and politics than any mere message. Thanks for listening today. I hope I've spent your time well. Drop a line with any questions or suggestions. Follow the podcast on your favorite social network. Please, if you can, if you got a moment, leave a positive review on your platform. The Almighty Algorithm will be pleased and spread the word to others. And of course, I never mind a little cash, so if you've some to spare, hit the support button. Until next time, be well everybody.